Hello, and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in True New York on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, who are known today as the Stockbridge Muncie community. I'm Kaylon McPherson. And I'm David Moore. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with a look at the proposed Clean Slate Bill, which will help those who have served time to resume their lives. Then, an interview with Mark Dunley by Tom McFeeters. Tom is a longtime activist in Albany and will be relocating to Maine in the near future. Later on, we will interview Anthony Opalka, historian for the city of Albany. Tony was raised in Troy and has a perspective on the urban renewal of the 1960s. After that, we will present part two of Willie Terry's three-part series of his coverage of the December 17 Toys for Tots Pickup Day in Albany. Willie interviews members of Undwanza. Finally, Tom Francis speaks with editor and author James H. Duncan about Albany travel and growth. We will hear James read his poem, Albany. But first, here are the headlines. As Governor Hochul delivers the State of the State Address to outline her priorities for 2023, she barred protesters, advocates, and the general public from the state capitol, public access to the capitol was restored after her speech. Governor Hochul used her State of the State address on Wednesday to call for an increase in funding for mental health services, the expansion of affordable housing, and some rollbacks in bail reform. She did call for tying the state minimum wage to inflation which advocates have not always embraced since they feel the base level is too low to tie to just the inflation. The Times Union reports that the annual State of the City Address, Schenectady Mayor Gary McCarthy, said the building more affordable housing, investing in electrical vehicle charging technology, and a stay-the-course approach to repairing the city's battered infrastructure and combating blight will be his key focus this year. Labor unions, women's groups, and many state Democrats are urging Governor Kathy Hochul to withdraw her nomination of Hector LaSalle to be the chief judge of the Court of Appeals. Many groups are worried that this his confirmation would result in a majority of the court having conservative viewpoints not in line with the interests of women's rights groups and labor organizations. The Times Union reports that the State Police Special Investigations Unit raided the headquarters of the New York State Troopers Police Benevolent Association and its fundraising arm, which has raised millions of dollars for so-called charitable causes. The TU has previously reported on the conflicts of interest and questionable financial and hiring practices by the Troopers Union. The Gazette reports that Brandy Hilliard... Bolden will become Schenectady County Commissioner of Social Services, replacing current Commissioner Paul Brady as he leaves for a private sector job. Hillard Bolden has been Associate Commissioner for seven years. That's it for the headlines. And moving right along to our first segment. Tonight, 2.3 million, or today, 2.3 million New Yorkers are prevented by current law from accessing employment, housing, education, and other basic life essentials. A proposed state clean state law uh, attempts to help those who have served their time to re- resume their lives. Supporters in Schenectady are trying to pass a resolution in support of the law. Moses Nagel reports. In her 2022 State of the State, 
Governor Kathy Hochul vowed to push for the Clean Slate Act in order to, quote, improve opportunities for released individuals following the completion of a sentence. Many municipalities have passed resolutions supporting the act. The Schenectady City Council has proposed one such resolution in support of the law. Sean Young of the group All of Us explains why it is important. Clean slate legislation basically proposes to do this, to seal convictions automatically for folks with misdemeanors and felonies. Three years for a misdemeanor after any probation period is served. So say someone does six months in the county jail and then another, I don't know, year on probation. Three years after that, as long as they don't have any interactions or, or charged with any crimes or anything like that with law enforcement, then they would have their conviction sealed. For a felony, same thing. You go to prison, you get a felony, serve that time. After you're done whatever supervision or parole, the, the clock tolls. Seven years in, you automatically get sealed. It's not an expungement, it's a sealing, which means law enforcement still has access to your record. And the sealing is not automatic for everyone. Folks that have uh, sexual offenses uh, are not eligible for this. And if you are attempting to work at a place of vulnerable population or where you have to use fingerprints for a background check, like all those places will still be able to see your record no matter what, right? The ceiling doesn't apply to them. The ceiling mostly applies to folks finding a place to live and finding a place to work. Now, our position, or, or at least the position of, of the folks at Clean Slate that have pushed this bill, which is, has a ton of support across the state, um, the Senate passed it last year. The House failed to bring it to the floor. The governor supports it in her administration. Several cities have committed uh, resolutions uh, in support of this legislation. So, you know, from labor to business to faith groups, it's a wide support. Many people acknowledge that what we have currently is a system of perpetual punishment where someone is convicted of a crime and they will forever, forever, have to deal with that conviction, basically pin-holding them to that act that they committed once upon a time in their life and never releasing them from that. Now, we all know that the community that most impacted by that type of perpetual punishment are communities of color, which still are the vast majority inside our prisons and then on parole or convicted in our state. And this legislation will, uh, in my opinion, give those who are simply trying to, you know, be welcomed back into society again and incentivizes good behavior because knowing that I don't, I won't have a conviction anymore is like, you know, like I won't have a conviction. Like if I just do it, you know what I mean? And you'll find a way, right? Instead of being lost to the idea that you'll never be able to live this down or earn your way back into our community, right? Um, there's an economic component. There's so many jobs that are vacant right now. We want folks working. We want folks investing in our cities and our towns and villages and continue to have a, a population that I guess many folks, you know, that are in opposition to this feel are disposable. It's not helping us as a society. This isn't about giving someone a break so much as it's about making sure our community as a whole is healthy, right? We understand how people come to criminality. We know, right, that it's not something, some essential quality about a person, right? We know that environment plays a huge part of that. Why are we not, we have not to this point made sure that there is a pathway of redemption, a pathway out of that and back into society. And I think if we do do that, if we begin to have that type of mindset, then we will as a society be better for it.
every single one of us. And I don't care what neighborhood you live in in the city or where, you know, how much money you make. If we have a population that we're continuing to feed into the carceral state, right, no one's safe because people are being released from prison, uh, released from jail, and they will have an impact on our community regardless of what. 95% of people return home, right? 95% of people return home to our cities, to our neighborhoods. We want to make sure that those residents have an opportunity to find their way out and to be contributing members. Despite the support, the move to pass a resolution in favor of the Clean Slate Act has raised some divisions in the council and throughout the city's politics, says Jamaica Miles of the Schenectady School Board and all of us. The city of Schenectady, the city council, is looking to pass a resolution in support of New York State passing the Clean Slate Act. This is not anything different than the city council has done before in support of other initiatives, groups, or organizations. In the city of Schenectady, the um, Republican Party has attempted in the last year to make a resurgence, even though the, the city has been democratically run for quite some time. Their current leadership, Matt Nelligan, recently declared and announced that he's going to run for mayor this year against Gary McCarthy. And he specifically released a video that he is against Clean Slate and opposes the city council supporting it. And their messaging is the same message that they've had for the last year of fear and misinformation and disinformation and specifically that if Jamaica Miles supports it, you should not. Surely, I thought, Ms. Miles is exaggerating about the opposition's focus on her personally as a reason to oppose such a measure. Here is Republican mayoral candidate Matt Nelligan from his Man in the Arena video. Clean slate sounds great. I'll call it a criminal conspiracy. It's a part of a greater conspiracy that's been going on for some time in our country, and in our state in particular, to put criminals on a pedestal and make regular people pay the price. It's a bad idea because of who supports it, not just Carl and not just Imani, but who's really pushing it? You guessed it, Jamaica Miles. The Democrats inside the Schenectady City Council, however, are not completely united on this issue. There are some city council members who also have been on the side of the Republican Party, even though they are registered Democrats. John Palmineni is one for sure who has been very outspoken and in opposition to any initiatives brought forward by the people of color on the city council. And that is very much the dynamics that we are facing here in the city. There is a fully democratic body. Every elected official at the city level is a registered Democrat the mayor, and all seven city council members. But there is a division that we've seen, and it's very evident and has been reported on by others, between the white Democratic members and the people of color who are largely black folks on our city council. Doreen DeToro, actually at the last city council meeting, said that as a property owner, she wants to in perpetuity know the history of any person. So she was very clear that she opposes 
clean slate. Jamaica Miles explained when this issue will be picked up again by the council and how this is just one facet of an ongoing project to give voice to many in the city of Schenectady, often ignored by city politics. On the 17th is the next committee meeting, and this will be something that's voted on in committee, and then it is brought as a legislative item to the city council meeting on the 23rd. We can expect that on the 23rd, there will be folks in attendance at that city council meeting speaking for and against the resolution, Um, just as there currently are online right now, individuals voicing their opinion, Matt Nelligan leading the charge from the Republican Party, um, whereas community members, residents in the city are the ones in support of it. Matt Nelligan moved here, I believe it was in 2019, and considers himself an expert about what this city needs without actually speaking to the residents impacted by this legislation. We continue to do the work we've been doing for three years now. It's you know, in February 15th, it will be three years of us on the ground talking directly to community members, specifically those who typically are not asked questions or, or have an opportunity to be heard, at homeless shelters and food pantries and in marginalized communities where the most impoverished are living and don't have access to the internet to take a survey that they never knew about, right? We continue to share the results of the Black Freedom Project survey where over 300 black residents said, what does it mean to have a safe, healthy and thriving community? So we're gonna continue to do that work and make sure that the voices of the people who are represented by those sitting in office are actually heard, and they can make informed decisions about what's in the best interest of those people. Reporting for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, this is Moses Nagel. To hear more coverage of the Clean Slate Bill, continue listening to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Moving right along to the second segment, Mark Dunley sat down with Tom McFeeters, a longtime fixture in Albany, Albany activist community, who will be moving to Maine soon. Mark Dunley talks with Tom about his career and what his next steps is in life. We're joined today with Tom McFeeders, a longtime uh, community activist in in Albany. I actually knew Tom when I first got married. He was our landlord and um, involved with the uh, Spotlight uh, newspaper out in uh, Del Mar. Uh, Then worked with Tom when he was uh, community outreach director at the Focus Churches in Albany, working on poverty issues. And more recently, he's been very active in the Mansion Hill and uh, South End community at working with the village um, and and also helping to collaborate something called the South End Community Collaborative. Tom is uh, moving on, uh, leaving our our areas. We wanted to uh, have Tom uh, join us and give us a little, you know, reflection of his his time in Albany and particularly his work uh, in in, in the South End. So, Tom, I'm not sure where you wanted to start, but how is the South End doing these days? Well, Mark, uh, thanks for having me on, first of all. Um, I have been doing some reflection because I signed up to uh, preach at my church, Westminster, on the 15th, which has forced me to start thinking about this. Uh, but I'm finding my thoughts still pretty much disorganized because there's some real regrets, but there's some real good news, some real optimism as well. So, I mean, the things that we were never able to do was to uh, address the situation as an apprentice, all the health issues there, 
Edge Apprentice is a public housing project on what, Pearl Street, right across in the Port of Albany. A lot Correct. of diesel air emission problems. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things we discovered early on when I was working with Willie White at a village is is the uh, amount of uh, air pollution created by the diesel trucks that roar back and forth through that that project. And we advocated. We did all sorts of things to uh, advocate and gone all the way up to the EPA and uh, <clears throat> all sorts of agencies and so on, and sort of like uh, radio silence. Uh, so that sort of thing is discouraging. The, the, the number of vacant buildings in Albany remains pretty much the same. I can't solve it, and the city can't solve it, and there's some good reasons why they can't. It's not as if nobody's trying. On the other hand, there there's a lot of energy and action going on now uh, in the South End, uh, we all know about the grocery store that just opened. Very exciting. Uh, exciting mostly to see people walking in there and discovering it for the first time and, and, and realizing that they have this asset. Um, there's another big... Uh, that, that's the old company. McDonald's at the corner of what? Pearl and Madison? The old McDonald's on the corner of Pearl and Madison. Uh, it still looks sort of like a McDonald's on the outside, but it looks completely different on the inside. Uh, uh, the, so there's other action on South Pearl. Uh, there are people who are doing things in other parts of, of the neighborhood on their own. Uh, entrepreneurs stepping forward. Some of them, some of this may work. Some of it may not work. But uh, people are really trying, I think, uh, to make a difference in a lot of different ways. Uh, the other really exciting thing is the potential for some good jobs good high paying jobs uh, at the Port of Albany and other parts of, of the city uh, and the county, really. Uh, the Port of Albany, as you know, is gonna be home to uh, manufacturing towers for offshore wind turbines. Uh, and even though that project has had a lot of travails and ups and downs, uh, still looks pretty certain and um, those jobs uh, we have been promised will be available to uh, low-income people who live in our low-income neighborhoods in Albany, uh, possibly because of the uh, New York State uh, Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act, which sort of mandates that. But also, uh, we think there's some goodwill there. Uh, and we've been talking to other manufacturers and so on. And this is a coalition that is really countywide, led not by the South End Community Collaborative specifically at this point, but by the people who really need to be at the table for this, the the people who create jobs and and know where the jobs are, but also the social service agencies uh, in our community that have stepped forward to try and figure out uh, how to to make sure that people who want to go into those fields, uh, learn welding or learn some of the other trades, uh, have the support that they need in order to do that. So, uh, as I said, it's exciting to watch that all develop, even though we're still a couple of years away from uh, the fulfillment of that. The MAP program is another great program, union-led uh, in the South End, uh, training uh, young people mostly uh, for these uh, union trade jobs. Sort of contradictory feelings. Uh, there's a lot more to do, uh, but there are a lot of people doing things. You, you know, I, I helped out uh, Alice Green when she ran for, for mayor 15, 20 years ago, and she, you know, she raised this theme of a tale of two cities. 
And, you know, I, I knew there was a lot of abandoned housing in, you know, the South End and in Arbor Hill. But when you actually went door to door, you, you discovered, in fact, there's a lot more abandoned housing th than you realize, which you mentioned. I know the Times Union has picked up that theme, but there seems to me this, you know, this century of sort of both racism and, and, and economic, you know, inequality. You know, why has such limited progress been made on, you know, creating a more equal Albany over all these decades? Mark, I think the structural issues are the hardest things to overcome. I mean, obviously, redlining, going back to the 40s and 50s and 60s, was one of the main causes for the abandoned buildings in Albany. Uh, that, coupled with a, a rather uh, disastrous policy where the city and the county got together and, and uh, uh, the county made the city whole for uh, back taxes, so nobody really paid much attention, so things went from bad to worse. When you were living in this neighborhood, uh, in the mansion neighborhood, uh, in my basement apartment, actually, we all we all thought that those buildings were savable. As a matter of fact, the building we were living in had been rehabbed from a shell. Uh, but after 20 years, these buildings are more and more difficult to save. Uh, and also, uh, the laws make it so difficult to uh, to wrestle them out of the hands of owners who think they can sit on them and get something good eventually. Uh, we have a land bank. The land bank has been able to do some, but they haven't been able to really crack the really difficult areas like the core of the South End, the core of Arbor Hill, and so on. Uh, one of the things that we are working hard on, and there will be a, a group that continues to work on this, is uh, we need to have a affordable housing trust fund, uh, a fund with a steady stream of income from a source that can't be yanked away uh, by, you know, in in uh, in a downtime for the economy. So there's money every year that can go towards uh, affordable housing and affordable home ownership, uh, with a focus on these really difficult areas. Uh, so that's one of the things that people are really pushing on. Uh, there's this, a very good group called Housing for All uh, that is also pushing right now for something called a, uh, uh, now see my mind is going to blank. Mark, help me out here. Uh, that's the inclusionary zoning where developers of large apartments, uh, a large apartment buildings uh, are mandated to uh, provide a certain number of affordable units. Uh, that's in existence now, but the number is very low. Uh, anyway, the whole idea that housing has become a crisis here in Albany and actually all across the state means that everybody now is paying attention to what needs to be done. It's not simply a, a small group of activists on working on this anymore. Uh, but the structural issues are really difficult to overcome. Anytime you make a move like this, you're goring somebody's ox, and certainly you're you're goring uh, the developer's ox and also the city development arm uh, when you say that they should give away more. So um, nothing is easy. <laughs> well, Tom, we're out of time. Tom McFeeders, um long-time community activist. Any final 10-second message to Albany, Tom? 
I am going to miss this city so much. I, I am just, uh, it's, it's going to be really hard. So, but I'm going to uh, where all my family lives now and uh, not getting any younger. So it's a good move. Well, thank you, Tom, for all your work. And this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Tom will be missed in the community. He will speak at Westminster Presbyterian Church, Albany on January 15th. For those just tuning in, I'm David Morton. And I'm Keelan McPherson. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, WOALP 106.9 FM Albany, streaming online at Media Sanctuary. Org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. We are joined in the studio by Anthony Opalka, historian for the city of Albany. Tony went to high school in Troy and has a perspective on the urban renewal of the 1960s. Tony, welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you, David. In the 60s, you went to school on public transportation at the time that the collar factories were still open. Share something of your experience, and how did you that lead you to become interested in history? Well, I guess even though I didn't actually grow up in Troy, I grew up across the river near Waterville. Um, I guess we walked all over because we didn't have a car growing up, and we either walked or took the bus. And what does a little kid do on the bus but look out the window or look around as you're walking? And my mother was also, um, she was from Albany, but she was a storyteller. So we learned all these stories of downtown Albany in probably starting in the 1920s. My grandparents still lived downtown into the 1960s, and we were there quite frequently. We used to walk to Troy. That was our downtown. And um, then going to high school, um, I learned about other places besides downtown Troy, you know, the, the Lansingburg and even, you know, South Troy because I went to a school that had students from all over the city and beyond. So we just, I just started learning about the city. And it's interesting that we talked earlier about um, public transportation and shirt factories. And um, they were all operating. The public transportation system was declining so we often found ourselves on regular city buses instead of dedicated school buses. And I can remember, you know, I went to Catholic Central in Lansingburg, and with our um, uniform blazers, all the ladies that were getting on the bus um, from the shirt factories um, expected the boys to um, give up their seats, which we did. And um, every one of the factories, most of which are now becoming apartments, were actually operating factories at the time. So the bus used to stop at every one, and there'd be a crowd of women, mostly women, um, probably some men, but I remember mainly women. And um, they were leaving their jobs in the shirt factories and going to other parts of the city where they lived, and uh, they were all operating. And of course, one by one, um, I graduated from high school in 1970, and one by one after that, they um, closed up with Kluwitz 
probably the most famous, but also the one that lasted the longest. And I think that lasted into the 1980s. Um, so there was quite a change in the economy. Um, you know, I was a high school kid, so what did I know? But it was actually happening during that time, but I probably wasn't fully aware of what was going on beyond what I saw. In addition to transportation and uh, employment and the changes that that brought about, the urban renewal strategies of the 60s altered all of those practices. And race has emerged as a, a great concern. Do you, do you think race had a factor in determining the 1960 urban renewal strategies? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think if we look at it realistically, the urban renewal statutes came about in the late 40s through the 50s. The Interstate Highway Act was passed in 1956, and um, those programs both served to move white people out of the cities into the suburbs and um, leave behind people who were um, mostly, or not, I shouldn't say mostly, that's exaggerating, but um, many who were racial minorities and lower economic status, but they didn't have a choice to move to the suburbs for both discriminatory reasons and um, economic reasons as well. So you got a, a major change in the composition of the um, urban population. And also with the urban renewal programs, a lot of, you know, in, in the case of Troy, I remember vividly um, wandering around downtown Troy. That's what we did after school. And um, then in 1973, half of it was torn down. And the, as it was called then, the hole in the ground stayed around for five years before the atrium opened, and a lot of people just abandoned downtown Troy as a shopping destination as well. So, um, you know, and then of course what happened, I don't know starting when, the change in the um, downtown character with all the shops and restaurants that are there now is quite a bit different from what I recall as, you know, growing up in, um, you know, next to the city and walking to downtown Troy. So what were the consequences of those decisions that we see today? Well, I think that, you know, if you look at the population of the um, cities of Troy, Albany, and Schenectady, they've gone down precipitously from, you know, and Al Albany reached its highest population in 1950 with 130,000, and now, of course, it's under 100. And Troy, I don't know the statistics on Troy. I always thought growing up Troy was about 65,000, and now I'm sure it's well under 60. And Schenectady, I think, might have reached 80,000, and that's quite a bit lower. Um, and the jobs, the types of jobs that are available to people in the city, available uh, along public transportation, have changed too. The you know the the people working in the shirt factories, they were union jobs and probably paid well enough to help support a family. Um, now, those types of jobs are no longer even available in Troy. We've had Gary Nelson speak with us about the Hoosick Street uh, uh, development. That was something that 
exists and existed, but the community was able to respond, the art center and others, with the project Bridging the Divide and the, and the Uniting Line. If you know anything about that, you could speak to that, but it was a strategy from the community to respond to the consequences of those decisions. Yeah, and the consequences, you know, the, just the physical environment that um, was left after that development was completed is just kind of amazing. Um, you know, we come up, I mean, my recollection, we, we didn't really go up Hoosick Street much, um, you know, except during, you know, during high school, but it was a two-lane street, and now, you know, you get to Hoosick and River, and you're under the bridge, and then when you get up the hill a little bit, it's like eight lanes wide and filled with traffic, and all of the stuff that is up in Brunswick now, all the shopping centers and so on, are the kinds of things that were available in downtown. So the people that, uh, you know, the, the physical environment was so changed, and the, um, the project with the uh, painting of the, um, I can't even think of the word, the, you know, <laughs> what's the word to hold up the bridge sections, you know, that's quite a, an, an undertaking there, and it seems to, you know, help make the area look better, although the social ramifications of it are still pretty, um, very much there. What are other possible community responses that we can see today? Oh boy, <laughs> if I knew that, I'd know the meaning of life. <laughs> um, you know, it's a, it's a difficult thing. I mean, it has to really, you know, what do the people there want? Um, the people that are so affected in their daily lives, um, you know, trying to cross Hoosick Street to, you know, go to jobs or downtown or wherever. Um, you know, they're, I, I, judging from my own background is in planning and historic preservation, so I tend to, look for, you know, sort of physical um, solutions, you know, how can you make it a better environment? But I think that's something that's really, really difficult to um, figure out. Across the country, there have been initiatives at light rail or also uh, removing asphalt areas. Is, is that a feasible option for this region? Well, light rail, I think, has been looked at and dismissed because of the capital investment involved. You know, the thing that's uh, that's available now is the Bus Plus, which is, you know, a cheaper, much cheaper alternative to try to move people on the bus more quickly with fewer stops and, you know, dedicated lanes and all that, which all of which hasn't come about yet. But, you know, people have been talking about light rail and bike trails and so on forever, so it's a much more difficult Thing to implement. Tony, we have a, only have a few seconds left. Is there anything else you'd like to comment on? And we want to thank you for your presence tonight. Well, you're welcome. And I think that, you know, nobody, nobody can say Troy is unique in what has happened to it. You know, every city in the country had this type of uh, development that we're all trying to figure out what to do with. Thank you, Tony, for uh, talking with us today. Thank you. That was Anthony Alpaca, the historian for the city of Albany. On Saturday, December 17th, 2022, roaming labor correspondent Willie Terry attended the Toys for Tots Toy Pickup Day at 40 Colvin Avenue in Albany. Willie talked with members, more members of 
Anwanza about their organization and involvement in that event. Yeah, this is Willie Terry, your Hustle Mohawk Roman labor correspondent. And I'm still here at uh, Colvin Avenue, 40 Colvin Avenue, at the uh, Christmas party or Christmas giveaway, toy giveaway for kids. And I have uh, as my guest, Apalaji uh, uh, Jackson, the president of uh, Anwanze. Mm -hmm. Julie Helling, the treasurer. Nana Clark, um, the um, communication relations. Relations. Okay. <laughs> so t tell, tell me some about your organization. Well, um, Anwanze is a very unique organization. Um, we was found in 2015, so we've been, you know, working since 2015. And um, the difference between other organization is Anwanze do all whole event every year, which is uh, we do our International Women's Days. It's in March. It have to be in March. It doesn't matter what day, but we have to do it in March. Like mm -hmm. you guys know, the International one. Women's Days is in March. So that event is a fundraise. And then we give a scholarship. Um, also, we give a war to the discontinuous women in the community who make a difference. You know, we call them our queens. And also after that, just right after that, we got the Mother's Days, which Anwanze women provide food for a shelter in the capital district. So that's one of our events we do too. The giveaway is like we just appreciate women, especially those in the shelter, because some of them don't have the family with them. And um, just after that, we got the back to school, which this year we did that in Cook Park. Uh, we give a, a book back to children with uh, school supplies uh, f uh, to the community again. And then after the back to school, we have uh, our Christmas giveaway, which is, we call that Christmas giveaway because everybody don't celebrate Christmas. Mm -hmm. So right. we can, we just say, um, the end of the year's party for children. That's actually how we call it. The end of the year party for children, which oh, is the gi yeah. Christmas giveaway. Right. So that's um, the different um, giveaway we do for our community. And uh, I'm very proud of our member because we work so hard to put all this event together. Like you can see yourself in the in the room is full of toys mm -hmm. and we wanted to say thank you for the toys for that because that's one of our supported. We got uh, Mr. Kurt who support us. We got a lot of supportive and we just wanted to let everybody know, you know, every year you can sign on the toys for that website and you want to choose Anwanze Association of the Capital District, you can choose us and sign for that and then we can provide kit for your children. Okay. And, and tell me uh, your name again and why you think it's, why you, how you got involved in this and why you think it's important. My name is Julie Hollings. Mm -hmm. I joined because she's the president uh, that my sister, and she dragged me inside. <laughs> when I get in, and I love it, and I join the group. Like she already said it all, that what we do in the capital district. And uh, this year for the 
and your party we got like like Lara Barbies from the community we receive them and I take care of the money in the community and I take care of the money in the in the association. You take care of the money, you money. Yes, I'm a treasurer <laughs> of money. <laughs> so like you see you see more gift coming in. Mm -hmm. That people love us and we love the community too. And we here, I don't know until what time, we're still waiting for the kids. And like next year, February, we're going to Africos. Yeah, we're going like five women, mm -hmm. they are going to Africos. Because we have many groups, there. you have many people there too. We then create another group of Anwanze in Africa, Abidjan. So we're going to meet them, so together we can put things in place. Mm -hmm. So. Oh, okay. And you're from the I'm from Cameroon. Cameroon? Yes. That's uh, West Africa or East Africa? Uh, we Central. call it Central, some people call it uh, uh, West, but me, like I'm from French speaking, mm -hmm. spoken whatever you say it. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I speak French, that's my first language. Oh, okay. Yes, yeah. so yeah. we're from Central Africa, right, okay. Cameroon. Gotcha. Cameroon is divided in two. We speak French and English, just like Canada. Right. Yeah, we like that in Cameroon too. We speak French and English. Mm -hmm. So I'm from the French part. Oh, okay. Yes. And let me just ask, is that your name, Nana? Yes, okay. my name is Nana, so and Nana, my last name is Clark. What I got involved, it's funny because um, these two sisters actually, as they said, we started this um, uh, association off of a football practice. Football practice. Yeah, so our kids. No football. football. Yeah, the kids. We, we were yeah. Where we from? We call it uh, football. But here it's football because I don't know it's food. So anyways, our kids were playing, and then both sisters came up with an idea of giving back to the community, and that's how we started. And uh, the 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 idea was grandiose for me. As an immigrant, um, we know where we are from, and we know what you have to do to get your foot in front of the other, and with God's blessings. And I enjoyed being a member of this organization because it's not only about giving back, it's the family that we had created. It's not only me or them. They are from Cameroon, I'm from Congo, which is actually close to their country. Um, there is uh, people who are from here, and um, um, they are, we, uh, we call it diaspora. Right. So we are from everywhere around the world, and we hope not to only stop those around the world can also get involved. Like she said earlier, we have another, an extended group of the Anuanze in Africa. Let, let me just ask a question. Maybe somebody tell me, because I know in Africa, you know, they don't, they don't, do they celebrate Christmas per se, or oh, they yes. have, they have different type of celebrations? No. no. Could you, so they do it on. Yes. In Africa, actually, when I grow up, Christmas in Africa was like, I don't even know how to describe. It was something where nobody can miss it. Yes. They cook so many they, food. We don't do. 
we it was the really christmas we got the the jesus. jesus we yes, have the mary what is listen it's a big thing in africa big, like cooking food and wearing your nice clothes and go to this family eat next door eat it's, it's, it's like church. go to church a midnight church it, it's midnight such a big a celebration must. in africa it was a must. i love christmas and they give Toys to the people who can the afford it yeah. because in Africa, you I mean, I don't know if you know, it's, it's a lot of poverty. Right. So, people who can afford to give toys to their children, they do. They and yeah. some people, just like us, we like, replace it with food and loving family, right? Like Nana just said, we haven't we just created an organization in Africa, we wanted to expand. So we can bless those other kids over there too, mm -hmm. you know. So if we have more toys over here, we have more donation. We can ship, ship it back it home, so the toys, the kid back home, can be able to have a gift. Because as you can see, when you give a gift, you can see that smile on the face. Right. And it mean a lot. When you see a little boy, a little girl with a big smile, with the toys. Oh my God. That's amazing. That just make so it, you, it make so you tell me because I know in this country right here on the twenty fifth all I mean twenty fourth, kids go to sleep mm -hmm. and they just restless the whole night. Yes. <laughs> <Trust> <laughs> me. They're restless the yes. whole night. Yes. Wake up. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I also want to mention something. We have our vice president. She's not here today. Her name is Jacqueline Marshall. Mm -hmm. um, she lives in Florida. Actually, she moved over there because she's doing her doctor degree. Mm -hmm. And she's going to graduate in two yeah. years. I'm so proud of her. I just want to give her a shout out right now because she's like the heart of this organization. Right. And we just want to say thank you, Jacqueline. Now, you say y'all are branched out or y'all just... Branched out to what New York and yeah, in a and Africa, Ivory Coast, and the Ivory Coast. Yes. Are you in other states besides? We are. It's in the making. You work, you work. We gotta start with the motherland first. Yes. Yes. That's where the name derived from. And we do have a website. We have a Facebook page. We'll see what y'all doing might be an inspiration maybe some other people like, hey they got together sisters and friends hey but we could do it <laughs> right. absolutely right. we we are sisters from all different walks of life right. and we offer whatever people need if we can offer those things we'd be happy to do so and let me ask you one other question the ultimate question what do you think of the man in red there in the red suit. <laughs> I'ma say something. The man in red suit, which is center, mm -hmm. he's he's amazing. Like you can see, he's all over dancing, doing this second picture. He's all over. You look all over the room. He's there. So he's a busy man, and that's why we chose him as a center. Right. Yeah. He brings the attitude, yes. full force of yes. what it means to enjoy the holidays and family. Right. And people won't be able to see y'all, but I just want to just describe it. They got uh, standing one one of one of the uh, ladies, the one of Santa's helpful, <laughs> and she got she got the flashing earrings on <laughs> and all the color colorful uh, guard. <laughs> Right. And that's what Stanley Helper have. Right. What is it? Yes. This is our T-shirt. And that's your T-shirt, right yep. there. Yeah. yeah. Right. This is our T-shirt. One of it. The Association yep. of United. Miss Picky with one voice. Miss Picky with one voice. One yes. Okay. So that was Willie Terry at the December Saturday's December seventeenth, twenty twenty-two event, the Santa 
was our own H. Bosch Jr. It's a little uh, note there. Um, this is part two of a three-part or a many-part segment interview. To hear the rest of the interview, go to our website, mediasanctuary.org. Every week, Tom Francis brings us a weekly poetry interview. This week, he is talking with James H. Dake Duncan. You can hear him at the Linda reading some of his poetry. James H. Duncan is the editor of Hobo Camp Review and the author of We Are All Terminal, But the Exit is Mine, Vacancy, and Beyond the Wounded Horizon, among other books of poetry and fiction. He is currently working on a new collection about his two hometowns, Albany and San Antonio. James has been back in the Capital Region for a few years after moving to Texas and spending time out west. In our conversation, we talk about Albany, coming back home after time away traveling, and growth as a writer of both poetry and prose. But first, we hear James read his poem, Albany, from the Year in Review show at the Linda on December 17th, 2021. Of my city, the worst I've ever said was, you are the grayest city in America, and you are where fun goes to die. Stranger after stranger would smirk and nod at my terrible jokes of home, and yet they knew nothing of you. I knew nothing of you, having left so young and spent so long taking and acquiring and stealing and cataloging memories and knowledge and mileage. And now I see with eyes renewed the green foliage billowing along the Hudson as blue tarpaulin skies range across the distant hills, the floodplains and tumbling kills named by Dutch tongues and indigenous translations, spawning colonies and crafters, Pillars and plowshares, steelworks and highways, bridges and theaters, thinkers and grifters, children and yard bulls, empty homes and barren fields, raised fists and rainbow crosswalks. Long nights and the faintest hints of dawn yet to rise, but striving and yearning, and I knew nothing of such inspirations, such visions, such Saturday nights and cemetery Wednesdays, and the long avenues of reckless rain that connect them. And nowadays, I might find myself with the book of Carl Sandburg beneath a tree in Washington Park and think, with dust on my shoe from one coast or another, that I have arrived full circle in this city with all its joy and loss and lapping waves and neon palace nights will be the end of me, the last yellow leaf falling from its final perch in the late October wind, reaching the ground, skittering, settling into the earth, so time and snow and age beyond age may take me wherever this spinning globe is heading next. Well, I, at the time, I was reading a lot of um, poets that wrote about uh, cities that they lived in and cities that they loved, Carl Sandburg, um, William Carlos Williams. And I started to think a lot about Albany and how my opinion of Albany has changed a lot over the years. You know, when you're young, you just want to get out. Uh, Albany seems like a drab, boring place. And people that like come through, I've heard comedians come in and say, oh, geez, this place is a dump. And it, it can seem like that um, anywhere, really, if you're only there for you know a short period of time or if you're dying to get out because you're 16. But having come back in my mid-30s and kind of rediscovering Albany and realizing I really didn't know it as well as I thought I did. And so you start discovering little things. You start going places you've never been in your own hometown, um, restaurants and bars you've never been to, driving down streets in neighborhoods you've never been to, even though you've lived nearby, you know. Um, so between doing that and then reading a lot of poets who write about place, um, I started to think I should filter all my thoughts and feelings about my hometown and what I'm discovering about it. 
I asked James why he left and ultimately why he decided to come back to the capital region. As a young man, big fan of Jack Kerouac and the idea of just hitting the road. And so I eventually sold everything I had, threw everything else in the backseat of my car, and I headed west and quickly ran out of money. So I showed up on my father's doorstep in Texas saying, hey, I live here now. And uh, surprise, surprise. And sort of used San Antonio as a launching point um, for a lot of other travels, going out to California a few times, crisscrossing, crisscrossing the country a few times, uh, back to New York, back, uh, back to Texas, you know, the Midwest, uh, Colorado. So um, there was a lot of adventuring, a lot of exploring. I eventually made made it to New York City working for an art magazine. And I served my time. I did about five years in New York. And one day I was just walking down the street and everything was just so loud and chaotic. And I thought, that's it, I'm, I'm good. And um, moved back to Albany, slowed things down a little bit. And it was the right pace and the right place at the right time. How does one's writing change when traveling? Yeah, my writing changed a lot. Uh, over the course of those years, early on, it was a lot of, you know, you're a young person writing about yourself and your feelings and your thoughts and woe is me. And, and then isn't life grand? I'm out at a bar. Um, you know, my reading, uh, the poets that I read were, it was fairly narrow. Um, a lot of B poets, Bukowski, guys like that. And you start broadening out and, and going to new places. You start meeting new people. And the perspective starts shifting from looking inward to looking outward. And when you're reading a lot of different voices and seeing a lot of different places and experiencing a lot of different things and you're looking outward more, you start trying to catalog what you're seeing and where you're going, what those places mean. And they mean different things when you're there and then when you leave, uh, that shifts and evolves too. So you have more to look back on. Uh, so the more I've gotten around town. Um, I've uh, been able to reflect on that and kind of cipher what the different meanings have been over different periods of time. James goes on to explain how through all of his experiences in life, how he's grown as a writer. You don't want to go back to the well too many times. You don't want to, you know, tread that ground over and over and over. Um, and, you know, wrote my fair share of bar poems when I was a kid. And, uh, um, but... Yeah, I think coming home and taking that time to kind of explore and seeing this place and being at a different place in my life, um, valuing the details and the quiet moments a little bit more. And so there was a conscious shift to get away from things I wrote when I was young, but there was also an unconscious focus on, um, you know, as someone who's you know nearing 40 and now zooming past 40. Hmm. Um, you know, something as simple as walking down the street by yourself on a Tuesday evening and, you know, the the lights and all the storefronts are coming on and the street lights all come on at once and the sun hasn't quite disappeared from the horizon yet. And little moments like that that might seem quiet and isolated have as much to explore and as much to say and have as many exciting little details, I think, is like um, very rowdy bar scene from, you know, when you're 23 or something in New York City. And so some of it was natural, just what I was seeing and what I was feeling and thinking and where I was. But um, there's definitely a sense of what else. Um, I remember getting a piece of writing advice of, you know, when you 
we all have these stories that we tell friends or when we're around, you know, in gatherings and, you know, you're telling that, oh, tell us about the time that thing happened and you're telling the story, <laughs> but you've told it 50 times, you told it a hundred times, but if you're going to sit down and write a poem about it someday or a memory that you've had, um, you know, what, what's the one detail you've never told in that story? What's the one scent or one sound that has always been there, but you've never like vocalized. And that's something that when I'm walking around Albany um, or San Antonio for that matter, um, you know, this might be a street I've walked down a hundred times, but what store have I never looked in? You know, what side street have I never taken? And what else is there beyond just what we pass by a million times and never really you know, take a close look at? So it's kind of a balance between, you know, I'm naturally older in a different place, but also I want to take the time to see what else is here and really mine that for, uh, for good poetry. As I've asked most of the poets in this series of conversations, can poetry still be a catalyst for social change? Every now and then there's a moment where like poetry really kind of stands out and comes to the forefront, whether it's an inauguration and there's a poet up on stage reading something and everyone's watching and, and, um, I think people are aware, are aware that there are poets out there and that we're, we're doing this work. And for a lot of their lives, they, they'll ignore it, but every now and then it comes into their life at very important moments, um, whether it's a big grand thing like um, the, the changing of power in a country or very personal moments when um, someone is at a funeral or a wedding and somebody reads a poem. Um, it's always present and it's always there and it always seems to crop up at the most important moments. And I think if we just wait for those important moments and then write something about it, then we're missing the boat and our continual writing and, and observing the world and sharing those works, um, we're kind of laying the groundwork for what might come next. Um, those moments when everybody stops and goes, oh, what's, what's happening? Let's, let's take a look. And like, well, the poets have already written about it guarantee whatever it is we're we've been there and so that work that we do is is always going to be there even if people aren't looking for it all the time they will eventually um it always comes around while james continues to travel he visits and reviews independent bookstores across the country for his blog the bookshop hunter you can find this and more information on his books at jameshduncan.com for hudson mohawk magazine I'm Tom Francis. To hear more weekly poetry interviews, listen every Tuesday or go to our website, mediasanctuary.org. That's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm David, and our engineer is Sina Bazilla-Hickey. We want to thank all of the volunteers who made this episode possible. Contributors to today's episode are Moses Nagel, Mark Dunley, Willie Terry, Tom Francis, and our two co-hosts, Kaylin McPherson and me, David Moore. We want to hear from you. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Media Sanctuary, or send us an email to hmm at Media Sanctuary. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand on our website, and on your favorite podcast platform. We appreciate you listening. Just remember, radio isn't dying. It continues to grow. Until next time.